Well, everybody is finding their seat. We have a couple of announcements. Chafer Conference, I mean Chafer Seminary, fall registration started, and so if you register before August 7th, your registration's waived, but also as members of West Houston Bible Church, you can sign up. You can go to the website, which is chafer.edu, and look at some of the courses they have. Uh, pray for Jeff Phipps. It'll be going to... Uh, let me see, his travel dates to Brazil changed. He'll be leaving, now that doesn't look right, leave on August 17th and come back on August 29th? That's what he told me. Okay, only 12 days? It must have changed since I talked to him yesterday. Okay, um, then he's looking for some volunteers that uh, heading up. That We did this last year. Several of us went out to Fort Bend County Fair, and they have a booth set up there and doing uh, evangelism. And it's a great opportunity to develop your skills at witnessing. And they may do it a certain way that you may not be the way you would prefer to do it, but all of us learn a method. Whatever you do in life, you will learn to do it somebody else's way. And then after you master that, then you're able to develop it and adapt to what works for you. So uh, I say that because being a stubborn young man, like a lot of others, uh, you know, I didn't like somebody, the way somebody did evangelism or somebody else, and so I wouldn't do it. But that's not the right attitude. All right, so those are our announcements. And um, we're going to pray in just a minute. And when we pray, one prayer request came in today is a good friend of ours up at uh, um, Preston City Bible Church who also listens online and is sort of a distant member of the church uh, had some heart problems today with fluid building up in the sack around the heart uh, taken to the hospital and they're going to be doing some tests on her tomorrow. Her name's Sean Tanucci, so we need to pray for Sean and what's going on there uh, tomorrow. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, worshiping by means of the Spirit and truth. So after a few moments of silent prayer, so you can confess sin if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful we have this time to just be refreshed by your word, studying your word, learning to understand your word, learning what should motivate us in the Christian life is, is just a, a wonderful thing. And Father, get our focus on that which is eternal, that which has eternal value, and off of all of the muck and the yuck that's going on around us that we see on television and read about on the internet and everywhere else, and we can just focus on that, which is really important. And Father, we pray for Sean Tanucci and these tests and everything tomorrow. Pray that the doctors will have wisdom to uh, properly analyze what's going on and be able to uh, help deal with that problem and that you'll be able to continue uh, without any difficulty. So Father, we just put her in your hands. Father, we also pray for our missionaries, pray for Mark and Renee as they're out in um, uh, the islands, and we just pray that you would give them a great, a great ministry there in Tahiti. And Father, we just pray that as we study tonight, we'll be encouraged by the things we study, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, which has a lot to do with Philippians 1, I know you're saying, what's the connection? Well, the connection is, and this has been sort of a subject topical study, coming out of Revelation 1, I mean, uh, Philippians 1 6, 
and Philippians 1.10, where the unusual phrase, Day of Christ, and the Day of Christ Jesus are used. And there's a lot of debate over the meaning of that. You will have those who come from an amillennial perspective or a covenant theology perspective who do not hold to a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture. And so they will take that as a synonym for the day of the Lord. But the day of Christ, as we studied when we looked at the passages, has to do with something positive, something we're looking forward to, something that is related to the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture of the church. And so these two events happen uh, contiguously. Rapture of the church takes place in at one sixty-fifth of a second. In the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Technically, the rapture only applies to those who are caught up to be together with them in the clouds. But we've covered that before. Uh, the, those who are dead in Christ have been in their interim body face-to-face with the Lord all this time. But the ones who haven't are the ones who are said to be caught up. Harpazo is the Greek word, and that is the word that it relates to the rapture. That Because that is translated was translated into Latin in the Latin Vulgate as uh, rapto, which is the word from which we get our word rapture. Every now and then you hear people who say, well, you can't find the word rapture in the Bible. Well, that's because rapture comes from a Latin word, not a Greek word. And so the Greek word it translated is found in the Bible. So you'll find some other argument other than something that doesn't work. So the rapture occurs, and instantly after that we have the judgment seat of Christ. And people say, well, that should take a long time, but... When you're in heaven, you're in an atemporal environment. There's no time. There's succession of events, but not time. So that's going to take place as far as what the time frame on the earth. It's going to take place in, um, in a matter of just a few hours on the earth, but it may be a thousand years, as it were. Remember, with the Lord... Uh, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. So it'll take place very rapidly in heaven, and the amount of time that goes by on, on earth at that time will be minimal. And so we started studying about what happens at the Bema Seat. This is important. It's related to the rewards, motivation in this life. And so we began to uh, go through and look at, at the various passages We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the fact that at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be an evaluation. The evaluation is is basically to expose the good works, the works done in the power of the Holy Spirit, the works that have eternal value, and the works that are burned up are wood, hay, and straw, and those are the good works that are not done in the power of the Holy Spirit, but in the power of the flesh. So we have the judgment seat of Christ. There are going to be some believers who are rewarded because when their works are evaluated, they have from small to large amounts of divine good or that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit, and the rest is burned up. But then there are those, the text says, that everything is burned up, but they enter into heaven yet as through fire. So they're still saved. They're not going to lose their salvation. So you have two categories of believers going into heaven. Those who are rewarded for their spiritual growth on this earth and those that are not. And that seems to be what we go through in various things in the the scripture as well. So we've looked at uh, Revelation 3.21 that there's this series of passages and Revelation 2 and 3. I've called them postcards. They're congregational evaluation reports. They're like the report cards you and I got when we were kids coming up in elementary school, and they are evaluation statements. They are addressed to the angel of the church, 
And I have gone through this in detail and um, got a paper on it that's up on the website that I wrote and gave at pre-trib, taking the position that Angel is not the pastor of the church because it's never used that way. Not, there's no place, no evidence of that. And the best way to understand it is that there are different kinds, of, different roles, different responsibilities of angels in the angelic armies. And there's some who, that are recording angels. They are angels that keep records. And this is like a, this is a courtroom evaluation kind of document. And the angel is like a combination court reporter and uh, and marshal that's in the courtroom to keep order. And so he's recording the characteristics of each church. And as we go through each of these seven letters to these seven churches, there are different things that are uh, praised and evaluated. And at the end, there is a statement of motivation and promise. And these are the overcomer statements. And so I've started by looking at Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame. So there's two things compared. Christ, the standard, is Christ overcoming something while he was on the earth. And he is elevated to the position of authority sitting at the Father's right hand on the Father's throne. He's not yet on his throne. He's not king yet. He isn't king of kings until he is given, according to Daniel 7, until he is given um, the scroll, the scroll that the giving of the scroll is described in Revelation 4 and 5. And it's when he's given that scroll that he is given the title deed basically to the earth, and then he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom, and he comes as the king of kings and lord of lords. And so right now we are not in any form of a kingdom other than the broad, sovereign rule of God over his creation. The reason that's important is because more and more I'm seeing this. You read and you read and you hear people talk about doing this for the kingdom and doing that for the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom. We're not in any form or shape of the kingdom. We're not doing anything for the kingdom. We are in the church. That's what we're studying in Ephesians. We are in the church and whatever we do is for the expansion and edification of the church. That's what Ephesians is all about. You don't see the word kingdom once in Ephesians. And so we're not here to do anything for the kingdom. And you have so many churches who are just caught up with a lot of bogus theology related to the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom of the Messiah. It's the kingdom of Christ that he establishes on the earth. And he does so by the rule of iron, according to uh, Psalm 2.7. So, um, Revelation 2 and 3 are letters written to the seven churches. That relates to church age doctrine. And then the rapture occurs, and what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is that there are a group of 24 elders who are wearing crowns. They're wearing Stephanos crowns. A Stephanos crown is an award or a reward for uh, success. They have run the race and they have been awarded. We talked about this last time in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We asked two questions last time, uh, last time about uh, the issue of overcomer and its use in John, and we spent three previous lessons showing that the overcomer in John is not talking about every believer, but those that are advancing uh, in their spiritual life. And then 1 Corinthians 9, the word overcomer isn't used, but the concept is there because there are those believers, again, who are going to run the race and not be disqualified. Running the race is what every believer does. That's the Christian life. That's the metaphor for the Christian life. Those who run well receive various crowns. And there are five specific crowns that are mentioned in the scriptures. So we have those crowns. And that word is always stephanos. It's something that you, you work toward. But salvation is freely given. You don't work for salvation. So you have to maintain that distinction. Spent a lot of time on that last time as well. And so 1 Corinthians 9 pictures this race. 
But those who do not run well, for whatever reason, are disqualified, disqualified from winning the crown, but not disqualified from entering into heaven. They don't lose their salvation. So that's, that's background. We come into the book of Revelation, we have the overcomer that's mentioned at the end of each one of these chapters. Now, I've been focusing on, on the overcomer in uh, John, in John's because he's the one who uses it mostly. But we'll come before we come to the end of the lesson tonight. We'll see that Paul uses it one time, and it's in Revel. I mean, it's in Romans thirteen where it says, "Overcome, don't over don't, overcome evil with good. Don't overcome evil with evil." That's a command in both instances. Whereas what we're dealing with in all these passages are it's participle. But that's a command to believers after salvation. So overcoming in that one verse is pointing out that's a general command for what believers are to do in terms of spiritual warfare, in terms of dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? So the first overcomer passage is in the short postcard to Ephesus which was uh, one of the most... Um, it, today, it's the largest archaeological excavation uh, in biblical countries. It's an enormous uh, layout, enormous city. And the only one that comes close is Jerash, which is the second largest, and that's in Jordan. So this is uh, Ephesus, and you have these seven letters all in addressed to these seven churches in Asia, which was a Roman province. We think of Asia as Far East Asia. We think of India and China and Japan and uh, that, all of that as, as Asia. But Asia was, uh, in, in biblical times, the east, the, was east of Rome, and it is this, this western uh, province in, in um, in what is now Turkey. So each of these short evaluation statements begins with a commission, which is an address to the, the angel of the church. And then there's a character citation referencing something about Christ. For example, we read in, um, in, in, with the, uh, uh, in, in 2.8, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Well, that's part of the description of the appearance of Christ in chapter 1. Then we read in the second letter to the church at Pergamon, or the third letter to the church in Pergamon, uh, these things say, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh, he's holding a sharp two-edged sword in, as he appears in Revelation 1. Um, at the beginning of the first epistle in Ephesus, which we looked at last time, he who holds, thus says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That's what's happening in chapter one. So we haven't gone through all of that, but there, each of these character statements relates to the attributes of Christ. It is his church. It's not my church. It's not somebody else's church. It's not some denomination's church. It is, every church is part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Third, we see uh, commendation. They're praised for certain things, and then they are condemned or judged for certain things. Uh, two of the churches have nothing good said about them. Uh, uh, two of them have um, nothing bad said about them. Then there's a correction, a remedy to recover from whatever their flaw is, and that is expressed through a command to repent. Now remember, it's addressed to a church, so by definition, it's addressed to a body of believers. A lot of people want to play games with that word, but the Holy Spirit is not going to call a church that isn't a, an assembly that's not made up of believers a church. It's well defined in Scripture. So it is a body of believers, and some of them are just as carnal 
as the Corinthians were in 1 Corinthians. And then there's a call to listen and apply. Those who have ears, if you're willing to listen, those who have ears, let them hear. And then there's a challenge. Those who overcome, those who correct the problem and go forward, they will, um, they will receive some type of reward. So last time we looked at Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, see that's the promise to those to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the overcomer. Now, we looked at the whole context, and it's very obvious that, that there are a lot of positive things said about the church of Ephesus. The negative is that they had left, uh, that they had left their first love. And so they have to overcome that sin problem. And that's what is the call to change is. In verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And what we saw last time, as I went through all of the various uh, passages at the end of Revelation, was that those, the gospel is expressed as the water of life, which is freely given. But that overcoming and various rewards are the result of what they do. So that's works. That's something other than salvation. Remember, salvation is a free gift. Rewards are earned. So we go through this and we see that, that while they're guaranteed eternal life, the paradise of God was a term that referred to a, a special area in, in um, Persian cities. It was a garden in the palace of the king. And so those who had access to that had special intimacy and privileges related to their, uh, their relation to the king. So the application is that those believers who are overcomers are going to have a special, an additional intimacy of fellowship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we went through the various passage about paradise referring originally to the Garden of God, where Adam and Eve were, and that uh, the Tree of Life was in the middle of that. And then the Tree of Life also in Proverbs expressed um, uh, something that was an, a, a blessing, something that was a privilege. And that those who uh, were compared to a Tree of Life, uh, it's not that they had... Uh, they, have, they were giving the gospel or salvation, but they were a source of blessing for those around them. For example, in Proverbs 13:2, a hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree. In other words, when that desire is fulfilled, it's a tree of life. It provides blessing for those around. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. It's a source of blessing for those around. And then in Revelation, we looked at passages in Revelation 22.2, 22.14, and 22.17 to show that uh, the tree of life is in the, this sort of center area of the New Jerusalem. Revelation 22.14 says, Blessed are those who do His commandments. Notice that's works. They do His commandments. Uh, according to the majority text and, and the Textus Receptus, uh, that would relate to what you read in King James or New King James. And uh, usually the majority text uh, in Revelation differs from the Textus Receptus. The majority text most of the time aligns with the critical text. We've covered that in the past. And so the other... Critical text reads, if you've got a New American Standard, NIV, it reads, wash their robes. I think who do his commandments fits the context and it has better manuscript support. And those who do that, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. So that can't be salvation because salvation is free. It's not based on works. And Revelation 22.17 talks about the offer of salvation. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation uh, 
Again, this relates to John 14 and various commands, John 15, 10, 1 John 2, 3. If we love him, we keep his commandments. So loving God and keeping his commandments go together, as I pointed out last time, and they, aren't in, they do not indicate that a person is saved. And the classic example, again, is because in John 14, Philip, the Lord's about to leave, says he's going to leave, and Thomas says, well, how do, and Peter said, how do we know the way? And uh, Jesus said, because I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except by me. And um, Philip said, well, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, how long have I been with you, Philip, and you don't know me? Well, we know Philip is saved. Again and again and again, the eleven are all saved. It's only Judas that wasn't saved. And Jesus is saying, you don't know me, because coming to know Jesus is only, you can only do that after you're saved, not before you're saved. You have to understand the gospel. You have to believe on Jesus to have salvation. You have to trust in him to be saved. And then after that, as you grow in the grace and the what? Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you were dating and getting to know people and trying to decide if you were going to marry them or not, uh, you were getting to know them. That's a process. Getting to know Jesus is what happens after salvation. That's why Paul tells Philip, well, you, how many of you know me and you don't know me? And then we get into these passages in, um, in, in 1 John 3, or 2 rather, where it's very clear. John says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Wait a minute, I thought knowing him was getting saved. But it doesn't say, by this we know that we know him if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, we know we know him if we keep his commandments. That's work. So this doesn't have anything to do with getting saved. It has to do with our life after salvation. First um, John 2.4 says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That doesn't mean he's not saved. That means he, he hasn't grown any. That means there's no spiritual truth in him. He's a baby believer who doesn't know anything. There are a lot of people who hear the gospel and never are taught anything about the Bible. And they go through life living just like they did before they were saved. Because they don't know anything. What did Jesus tell the disciples to do? To go and teach. You know, baptize in the name of the Father and the, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And make disciples, that is, make students through teaching. So... 1 John 3, 22, 23, and 24 talks about uh, the, the role of keeping his commandments. And the one who keeps his commandments, in verse 24, abides in him. That's a term for fellowship, not a term for salvation. Same thing in John 4, 21, 5, 2, and 5, 3. Loving God is manifested both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Numerous passages, if you love God, you keep his word. The one who doesn't keep his word doesn't love God. Doesn't mean they weren't believers. So salvation is free based on taking the water of life freely given. But rewards are based on work. Revelation 22.12 My reward is with me and to give to everyone according to his work, not according to his faith. According to his obedience, growth, maturity, Walking by the Spirit. Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So there, important for tonight, reward is part of inheritance. An inheritance is not the same as salvation. And how is reward given? It's on the basis of service. For you serve the Lord Christ. So, the tree of life, as I pointed out last time, is conditioned upon works. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Tree of life is something special in addition to salvation. And uh, Revelation 2.7, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God.
And the result is, Revelation 21.7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So this phraseology I pointed out last time from the Old Testament, God awards David the privilege of the Davidic covenant. Not everybody had a covenant with God. David had a covenant with God. And God says, and I will be your father. This is showing a special blessing for those who have overcome. All right, so let's... um, Go to Revelation 21, 6 and 7. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and, I will be, be, and, and he shall be my son. These are two distinct things, which I'll come back to. Uh, second, I've just mentioned this, 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And Acts 13, 33, it is... Uh, he, the father says to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So that sort of takes us through, I'm going to skip ahead here, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, quote from last time, some have said that eating from the tree of life was equivalent of receiving eternal life, but this is most evidently a false interpretation. Eternal life is the prerequisite for membership in the true church. Eating of the true of life is a reward that shall be given to the overcomer in addition to his salvation. So that's what we're looking at. So let's look at the second letter to the church of Smyrna. Now this is difficult. I've got notes to go through the the second and the third one. The third one will take me ten minutes. This is difficult because, as I've pointed out so many times over the years, that evangelical jargon is sloppy, and it doesn't always reflect biblical usage. We've already covered one example tonight. We think you go up to somebody, you're going to witness to him, well, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. I believed in him 30 years ago. No, that's not what the Bible means by knowing Jesus, so don't change the terminology. Invite Jesus into your heart. Revelation chapter uh, 3, 21. But that's a fellowship verse. Jesus standing at the door knocking because he's been excluded from the fellowship of the church. Two verses earlier it says that, that Jesus, that the Father loves this church and he uses the word, the verb phileo. Well, God has agape love for unbelievers, but he never has phileo love for unbelievers. So he's knocking on the door of this church that he loves, but he's been excluded because they're in carnality. And they're in rebellion against God. He's knocking to, to come in and be part. That I can eat with you. Remember, eating in Scripture always pictures intimate fellowship. And so uh, that verse, this idea of inviting Jesus into your heart, is not biblical. You know, Jesus doesn't want to be in your dirty, nasty, wicked heart. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So that is is just bad theology, bad exegesis, and bad word studies. Now, do people get saved with sloppy verse usage? Certainly. Because they're believing in Christ. It's just that the person that's explaining the gospel to them doesn't know how to accurately explain it. But the person they're explaining it to has trusted Christ. God knows what goes on between your ears. And if in your thought life you're saying, yeah, Jesus can save me. He died on the cross for my sins. They're saved. They don't have to pray a prayer, raise a hand, walk an aisle, anything else, as long as they believe. And that doesn't, they don't have to do anything else. Revelation. Um, and so and we come to the, to the uh, second letter. And we come to Revelation 2.10. I'm not going to go through all the, all the details of the letter. We have enough issues to deal with. So in Revelation 2.10, it's written to the angel of the church at Smyrna. And as, you, as we come to the end in verses 10, it's only four verses. You come to the end of verse 10 and 11. I want you to pay attention to what we see here. They have been told that... 
Christ has observed them and knows their works. Says, I know your works, your tribulation, you're going through adversity and persecution and poverty, but you're rich. You're rich spiritually. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And I know the blasphemy of, of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there's false teachers in their midst. And then he says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, indicating persecutions that are coming. He said, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. There are a lot of discussions, what does that mean? And I've read people who say that uh, this refers to the fact that there were ten different periods of, of uh persecution in the early church. There's other guesses. Actually, we really don't know what that is describing. But what's important is the last line. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So you have the crown of life, one of the five crowns in Scripture related to rewards. Is this something that is given as part of their salvation package? A lot of people think so. If overcomer means every believer, then the crown, everybody gets these crowns. But it's very clear that these crowns are given for specific works. Notice what it says. Be faithful until death. So getting the crown of life is conditioned on being faithful unto death, not recanting of their faith under the threat of death or the threat of persecution. And what's interesting here is that the grammar here, the word be is the word genomai, which means to become something. And in a lot of cases, it means has the idea of becoming something that you're not yet there. And it is an imperative verb. So this is a command. And the command is to be faithful. Pistos, to be dependable, to be consistent, to be loyal. Uh, faithfulness, trans the translation, the usual translation of pistos, O-S, is the life of the faithful believer after salvation. Pistis, I-S, is faith that is exercised by the individual when they trust in Christ as Savior. And you can't make a mistake there. When John MacArthur first wrote his book on Lordship Salvation called The Gospel According to Jesus, he made the mistake of saying that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it said, says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, he said that meant being faithful. And he had pissed us in it. Now, in the second edition, they corrected that. And when I wrote a book review on that, Tommy Ice and I were writing a series of newsletters where we were critiquing and evaluating various uh, movements. And there, are, uh, some of those are up on the DBM website entitled The Gospel Wars. That was back when Star Wars was real popular. So, and um, I evaluated MacArthur on that very thing that he misquoted, misinterpreted the, the Greek at that point. It's, it's pistis in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is the act of faith. But it, it, what is focused there is, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that. The that, as we've studied in Ephesians 2, 8, that is a neuter pronoun. It refers not to... Grace, it does not refer to faith, because they're feminine nouns. It refers to the whole thing, the by grace through faith salvation. So a lot of times when you have multiple nouns in uh, different genders, then it shifts to a, rel a neuter relative pronoun to, uh, re to refer to them. So being faithful here is not trusting in Christ. It is being faithful to Christ after you're saved and not recanting of your faith under the threat of persecution. Be faithful until death. Now, they're promised the crown of life. So this is a Stephanos crown. It's a crown that's given for winning the race, as it were. 
It's referred to again in James 1.12. Now, I want you to notice how consistent the Bible is in using certain vocabulary to describe certain things. Blessed is the man who endures testing, literally. For when he has been approved, and the Greek word there is dokimos. Now, dokimos has the idea of looking at how somebody handles a test, a, a difficult situation. Uh, when you're at work, when you're uh, at doing your hobby, we're always being evaluated on some basis. Some difficulty comes up, some challenge, and we get evaluated. That's the idea there. Not, not to show how, how we fail, but how we have done well. And that's dokimos. That's the noun. So when he has been approved, when he has done well, he receives the crown of life. He doesn't get it because he's saved. He gets it when he's done well, when he has endured or persevered under uh, temptation, under testing, literally. Uh, He'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, what's interesting is this uses the word adakimas, dokimian, in James 1.3. In James 1.12, James 1.3 earlier, it's, it's... Test the test is dokimos, and in First Corinthians three thirteen, which says related to the judgment seat of Christ, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test or will evaluate each one's work of what sort it is. So notice this evaluation process is referenced in all these verses. And as a result of a performance, a crown is given, a Stephanos crown. We get into passages like 1 John 3, 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. But this doesn't refer to simply being saved because brand new baby believers don't do a great job of loving the brethren. Sometimes more mature Christians don't do a great job of loving the brethren. Um, and John goes on to say, because we, love, uh, we know we pass from death to life, that's the experience of our spiritual life and growth, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, some people will say that's talking about, well, he's not really a believer. Well, wait a minute. It says... He who does not love his brother. John makes it very clear that they're brothers in Christ. They're both saved. But the one who doesn't love his brother abides in death. He's, he's in carnal death. He's not spiritually dead. He hasn't lost his salvation. He just is acting like an unbeliever, like a spiritually dead person. And then the principle in verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Not, not hates an unbeliever, but hates his brother. That means he's hating someone who is also a member of the body of Christ. So they're both viewed as believers. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, that doesn't mean he's not saved. We've gone through this many times. You go back to John 15, and Jesus sets the meaning of abiding in John 15, 1 through 8. Abiding is a term for fellowship. Abiding in Christ. Walking by the Spirit. Uh, walking in the light. These are all terms for the believer that is growing and maturing. They're not terms to distinguish the believer from the unbeliever, but to distinguish the believer who is growing from the believer who is carnal or in rebellion. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, Abiding always means fellowship. He's not living like somebody who is experiencing the rich fullness of of life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal or destroy. I came to give life and to give it abundantly. So this is a believer who has life, but he's not experiencing the abundant life because he's too busy living in sin, hating his brother, which is a work of the flesh. So then we get to Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, I always hear this. It just looks so obvious. The second death is the lake of fire. And so that obviously means that uh, the one who overcomes isn't going to go to the lake of fire. 
But we have to look at word usage. Word usage is so important. Shall not be hurt by the second death. What do we know about the second death? Well, first of all, let's, let's back up. The one who has a hear, let him hear. This is an imperative. Listen. And listen and do what I say. That's what this means in, in both Old Testament passages. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. It's not just, just hear and let your ears be stimulated. It's hear and respond to the message that the Lord our God is one God. Uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, there's our phrase, it's a present active participle, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So to understand this, we have to understand three things. First, the meaning of the second death. Second, we have to understand the doctrine of inheritance, what the Bible teaches about inheritance. And third, we have to learn about forgiveness and cleansing of sin. All three of these come to bear in understanding this term. So, what is the second death? The second death is the perpetuation of spiritual death into eternity, Hebrews 9:27 and Revelation 20:12 20, to 15. It refers to the final judgment of the unbeliever in which the unbeliever is cast into the lake of fire forever. So it follows the general concept of separation, that uh, spiritual death is separation from the life of God, alienated from the life of God, Ephesians uh, 2.17. And uh, all death is a concept, we think it's a cessation of existence, but nobody ceases existence. Everybody is either separated from physical life, separated from the life of God, and various other forms uh, of death. So, the second death then refers to the lake of fire. But it says here that shall not be hurt by the second death. And I've, even today, I just, I just struggle with what this, this word, this word means unjust or unrighteous. Dekeo is the verb for performing righteousness, doing that which is just or righteous. The A in front of it is the negative. And, but yet, there seems to be this idiomatic meaning that's used here that means to suffer loss in some way. So, he who overcomes is not going to suffer loss by the second death. Now, that makes a lot more sense. He's not going to suffer loss by the second death. Let me show you what this means. We have to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20, where these things are defined. We're going to be looking at Revelation 20 and then Revelation 21. Some of you may never have heard me teach on this before, and it, it, it is... First time I heard somebody go through this, I, I was like, well, that's, that's just a flash of the obvious. It's so true. But if you're not really struggling with the text here then you're not gonna, it's not going to be so obvious. So in Revelation 20.14, the, the, the context is that the, at the beginning of that verse, an angel comes down from heaven with a chain and a key to the bottomless pit, to the abyss, and he lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is dev the devil, and puts him in the abyss for a thousand years. And he's not released until the end. But he's put there so he's no longer going to be a source of deception for the nations for those thousand years. The point of the one point of the millennium is that without Satan or the demons being available to to deceive those who are on the earth, they have no excuse but their own negative volition, their own rejection of God. And then in verse 4, there's a, the judgment. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And this is the great white... Uh, uh, no, this is a different judgment. Sorry, skipped ahead. Uh, thrones, they sat on them, judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this is the resurrection of the tribulation saints, 
And they will also, along with the church, live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead do not live again. So all the unbelievers are still in, in Sheol, in Hades. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So there are different stages to the first resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. Then there's the resurrection of church age believers at the rapture. Then there's the, this third component, the resurrection of these tribulation saints who were martyred. Then we read in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such, that is, those believers who are church-age believers who are raptured and resur resurrected or raptured. Then you have the uh, martyrs of the tribulation, and these are all the saints that are resurrected and go, go to heaven, the resurrection of the two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation. Um, over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years in verse 7, there's going to be the satanic rebellion. He's released. He deceives the nations. They rebel against God. And then at the end of that, fire comes down from heaven that devours all of the rebels against God. And the devil who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are. So nobody's in the lake of fire until the end of the tribulation. Then the false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire. Then Satan and the demons get thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the uh, millennium, at the end of the, uh, uh, after they are judged at that Gog and Magog rebellion. And then there's the great white throne judgment. And at the great, Jones, great white throne judgment, the books are open and they're evaluated according to their works to see if they have enough righteousness to m merit salvation. And since nobody has the, no unbeliever has the righteousness of Christ, none merit salvation, and they will all be what? Verse 13, um, or verse 14, they will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, let's skip over. We've already covered Revelation. Uh, go back to Revelation 26, something I didn't bring out. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Now, that word part in English can have a couple of different meanings. In fact, the Greek word can have some of those same meanings. Have a, the idea of having a place or a role in something. But that's not how it should be interpreted. This word is a very important technical word. It is the Greek word miros in the yellow box. It's a technical term for a share or portion of an inheritance. So if you write a will and you designate a share of what you own to a particular heir, that's the miros, that's the term. And I, got, I have a passage there from Luke 15, 12. This is the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And we read, the younger of them, that's the one who's going to be the prodigal, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. So what he's asking for is the share of that wealth. And the word meros is used there in Luke 15, 12. So that is his, his inheritance. That's what he asked for, and that's what he squanders. It's his inheritance. Now, that's important to understand that word, because that's what we're going to be talking about. What we receive at the judgment seat of Christ in terms of rewards and inheritance is our meros. That's our share. That's our inheritance. That is what is earned. Now, Revelation 21.6, he said to me, this is the, um, the angel that is revealing these things to John. And um, he has a vision in verse 5. Where am I? Sorry, 6. In verse 5, then he who sat on the throne, that phrase, 
always refers to God the Father in the book of Revelation. He who sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of life freely to him who thirsts. That's talking about salvation. We've seen that many times in 21 and 22, this reference to the fountain of the water of life freely given. Then, in contrast, he says in verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. See, you have salvation in verse 6. You have inheritance in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. We've already seen how that phrase relates to giving a special privilege or honor to a believer. It was used in the Davidic covenant. God is going to uh, have a more intimate relationship with David than with others. And he will be his father. And uh, so, verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, verse 8, In contrast, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part. Miros. Now, I would translate this, they will have their inheritance. Not them. They're not the ones being cast into the lake of fire. It's their inheritance. See, God has already determined what rewards he would like to distribute to each of us. But if we squander our inheritance like the prodigal son, we're not kicked out of the family, but our rewards are squandered, and they are thrown into the lake of fire. Though, and, and this is what you get. All the, you go to Galatians 5... Is about Galatians 5, 20, 19, 20, 21, where it goes through the works of the flesh. And at the end, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom. That doesn't mean they won't get saved, because salvation is not based on works. Salvation is not based on avoiding sin. But those who continue to live in sin and live in carnality and not confess their sins for forgiveness, and not ever walk by the Holy Spirit, they are not going to have an inheritance. They are the ones who are not going to have rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So, uh, those, they will have their part, their inheritance in the lake of fire, lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, we have this contrast. The free gift in verse 6 the overcoming, which is additional rewards and privileges for inheritance. Notice, overcomers shall inherit. And then the one who's the, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderous, these are the non-overcomers. The non-overcomers shall have their inheritance, their meros. So the contrast, the overcomers will inherit all things. The, the, the non-overcomers will lose their inheritance, but not their salvation. Just like what you see in 1 Corinthians 3. That there's going to be this evaluation. There are going to be those who have gold, silver, and precious stones amidst all their wood, hay, and straw. And when it's evaluated, there, there's going to be some gold, silver, and precious stones for rewards. But then there are going to be others who have no gold, silver, and precious stones, and they don't have any rewards. They don't have any inheritance. That's the same thing you see here. The overcomers have rewards, just like 1 Corinthians 3, and the non-overcomers don't have rewards. So we have this phrase, I will be his God and he shall be my son, is a, an additional honor to, sal- to just being saved. 2 Samuel 7.14 says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is talking about a special position and role that David will have because of this covenant in his relationship to the Lord. Same thing when, Je- when the Father says to, about Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then what? He's elevated to the right hand of the Father to sit on the Father's throne. And then it shows up in another important passage. John 13. Everybody knows the story. Jesus is coming to celebrate the Last Supper. 
the Seder meal, the Passover meal with his disciples. And so he goes around and he starts washing everybody's feet. And he comes to Peter. And he starts to wash Peter's feet. And Peter said, you're never going to wash my feet. Not you, Lord. I'm not going to let you do that. You're not going to take the form of a servant and do that for me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Now, he uses the same word. He uses that word meros. He's telling Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Now, what does he mean? Is he talking about literal foot washing? No. Because there's two different words for washing in Greek. One word is luo, which means to take a bath, and you're just washed from head to toe. And the other word is um, uh, nipto. And nipto would be if you're going to go in and you wash your face, you'd use the word nipto. If you're going to go in and wash your hands, you'd use the word nipto. If you're just going to wash some part of your body, you use the word nipto. And this goes back to the time, uh, the descriptions of the anointing of the high priest in the Old Testament. And you see it used this way in Exodus 40 where it's actually applied to uh, Aaron and his, and his uh, sons. And you see it in the commands given a few chapters earlier. And that when the high priest is anointed, he is bathed from head to toe. And when they tr- the, the rabbis translated that into from Hebrew into Greek, they translated it using the word luo. That word was only used in the Greek translation to describe that initial complete bathing that occurred at the beginning of the high priest's ministry. But he would go out and he would get dirty. He would go places he shouldn't go and he would do things he shouldn't do, symbolized by dirty feet and dirty hands. And so when he came back to serve in the, t- in the tabernacle or temple, the first thing he would have to do is go to the laver and wash his hands and wash his feet. When the rabbis translated, see the Hebrew only had one word for washing. But the rabbis understood that there were two different kinds of washing. So when they translated the washing at the laver, they used nipto. He's washing his hands and he's washing his feet, and that's a picture of confession of sin. We are positionally cleansed of sin when we trust in Christ as our Savior. We're bathed from head to toe. That's why Jesus says to Peter, I don't know if I have the next verse, I don't. And the next verse is that all of you have been cleansed except one. Because Peter says, well, Lord, if, if that's the case, just bathe me from head to toe. And, the Lord, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't get histrionic on me. We're not gonna, you don't need to get bathed from head to toe because all of you have been bathed already. He's talking about spiritually. They've all been saved. They've all been cleansed head to toe. Now all they need to do is have confession of sin. Confession of sin, we are cleansed and restored to fellowship. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that what we mentioned, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So every time we confess sin, God removes all the stain of all the other sins that we didn't know about or we ignored or we didn't mention. And so, and what, he, what Jesus is telling Peter here is if you don't let me cleanse you every time you sin through confession, then you're not going to have an inheritance with me. You're not going to have an inheritance in the kingdom. You're not going to have a, anything going on there. No rewards because there's no cleansing of sin. So this is consistent word usage throughout the scriptures. And, you know, I was taught, when I was a kid, I was taught this. I was taught this at, at, at Christian camp in the summers. I was taught this in Sunday school. I was taught this in church. I was taught this in seminary. But people don't teach this anymore. And it's all based, they all go back to a work salvation. And it, it's just an absolute loss of the concept of grace and God's goodness and his provision for us. So this is the privilege that comes to those who pursue the Christian life. And, and it's to motivate us to grow and mature and to deal with the sin in our life. Uh, in Romans 13, it says, 
that we are commanded, overcome evil with good. That's the general command. And, and that is exactly what we have at the end of each one of these little postcards. Is in summary, it's saying, overcome evil. And that is something that is done after salvation. And it's not a positional reality of something that just means that the overcomer is automatically someone who's saved. So we'll continue this next time. And uh, there's so much, I'm trying to just synthesize this. But this is the tough one. Uh, The others are pretty easy. But this is really a tough one, and and people stumble over or ignore it. I've looked at a number of uh, commentaries, and you can always tell that they just sort of slide past it. But you have to look at all these things together and then be able to put it together uh, in the right way. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful lesson. I've taught it several times in the past where I've gone through it in a lot more detail, and you can find those lessons on the Internet. So let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to realize that it's all grace. We're saved not on the basis of who we are or what we've done or any works whatsoever. Salvation is such a wonderful free gift, freely offered. It's the water of life. And once we're saved, we're new creatures in Christ. Now the issue is, are we going to grow and mature as a newborn baby? Or are we going to just uh, forget you and go on and sin and uh, live life for our own pleasure? And many times we will do that. But if we confess our sins, then you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And what we do will be the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it will, will produce that which is rewardable when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, and we will not worry about having shame, as John says in his epistle, not having shame at his appearing. And so we pray that we will be motivated to grow and mature as believers from this, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.